This is the Spark Podcast, a bi-weekly show where we explore the creativity, technology, and business of CG. I'm your host, Marina Antunes. Nilo Rodas' career is nothing short of epic and spans such iconic franchises as Star Wars, Raiders, and Star Trek. But if you were to ask him about it, he'll tell you that he came into much of it accidentally. I recently had a chance to speak with Nilo about everything, from his early years working in Detroit's booming car industry, to his shift into filmmaking, and his friendships and collaborations with the likes of George Lucas, John Hughes, and William Gibson, among others. This is part one of our two-part conversation. Look for part two, dropping in your podcast feed in two weeks' time. So thanks so much again for the time. I really do appreciate it. I have so many questions to ask you, but I thought I, I would start, if it's okay with you, f- with finding out w- how your interest in art and design started. Um, probably while I was in the seminary. Um, you know, imagination goes crazy in seminary because you're so starved. <laughs> you know, all our letters incoming and outgoing were read, so we had no privacy. All our magazines and newspaper were um, edited. So the only thing I can do was imagine what the world outside the seminary was was like. And so it started there. And so how did you uh, turn that into a career? Like, did you go to school for art and design? Um, well, so what I've discovered was there were two things I was doing um, um, uh, uh, you know, to um, to relieve boredom. One was writing, and the other one was was drawing. And um, when when I went to California to to do my uh, college, um, I discovered that um, you know to go to college, all you really have to do in in the states is to challenge a college test exam. And if you pass that, you're a college student. Um, and I had to do that because they couldn't figure out what exactly, what level I was in education. Was I high school? Was I third year? Was I, uh, was I a senior? So the best way to do that was just take a college exam and see what happens. And it turned out that I passed college exams. So I was there a little bit early. And... Pursued art. I actually um, started thinking of um, um, serigraphy, printmaking. That's how ancient I am, yeah. <laughs> and then um, I transferred to San Jose State University um, to take up printmaking. But because I registered late, there was nothing left in the art courses. And uh, one of the teachers, uh, one of the um, advisors suggested, why don't I take industrial design? It's kind of like sketching, except you're, you know, you're envisioning products. And this is just to keep me on hold so that I was in school because I was on a college uh, student visa. And and then they will pass me along to the art department soon as uh, you know the next semester. And while I was in 
industrial design, one of the teachers I had there asked me, what did I have in mind as printmaking? Exactly what is that? You know. And I never thought of it. It was just fun to make. And he said, most likely your work will be hang in somebody's house. That's the best you can do. Why not design cars? You know, why not design products? So I, I thought, why not? So I changed course. I majored in industrial design. And after, um, before I actually graduated out of college, uh, General Motors recruited me to uh, Detroit. This is in the early 60s to, uh, for a summer program. And after the summer program, they gave me a scholarship. And after graduating school, they took me in as a car designer. So, long answer. That's fascinating. Okay, so now my question is, how do you go from de- from designing cars for Ford? And I kind of want to know if you designed any cars that are like iconic, because now I'm curious. No, no. So what, what they usually do, what uh, it was at General Motors. What General Motors usually do, they were they were in fact um, the destination, the holy grail for industrial designers. Now I didn't know that because I really didn't care about car design. I think they were interested in me because I was a pure designer. They had to teach me how to design cars once I got to GM. Um, I think once. Once you know design, you know, you can kind of apply it uh, once you know industrial design. Industrial design relates a little bit to material, material processes, engineering, and how you use this material and how you use the end product. So it encompasses a lot of um, um, – how do you say that? A lot of schools of thoughts along the way. You can't just make things up. You have to kind of know how it's going to be manufactured. What's the uh, um, what's their capability of manufacturing this? What's their volume, and what's their price point, and all and on and on. So there's a lot of uh, information that needs to be juggled before you can actually put something down on paper. So that to me that was very interesting. And so how do you go from, you know, the car industry to working in movies? Um, The challenge of designing cars at that time was I had to be physically in Michigan, uh, specifically in Detroit. And after one year, I discovered I really didn't like being in Detroit. Um. Long winters, but I can't ski <laughs> because I'm in the middle of the city. Um, and I was recruited out of there by a small company, a small um, industrial design company. Uh, and uh, from there, I, I was recruited back to California to design military tanks. And within eight months of working for this company that makes military tanks, I was seeing a shrink. 
And, you know, one session later, the shrink told me, Nilo, I know what your problem is. I won't even charge you for this. What you need to do is quit your job. You don't like designing machines that kills people. Quit your job. Whatever you need to do, whatever you have to do, go find another job. So literally one year to the date that I signed sign up to this company because they have to move me from uh, Ohio to back to California. I had to sign one year agreement that I had to stay with them for at least one year. Um, one year to the date, I can now leave this company that's you know designing military tanks. A telephone rang at my office and it was George Lucas. I didn't know him at the time because I'm not a movie guy. And I'm willing to design anything. I'm willing to to take a job anywhere, you know, because I need to quit this job anyway that I had. So it didn't matter to me who he was. I was going to see him the following day. <laughs> so I went to Marin County, drove to Marin County, um, went to his house, a regular house. And, you know, I was in my... I was wearing my suit and tie, and I was—I brought my uh, slide carousel. This is how long ago it was. And you know, I proceeded to show my General Motors design, my airplane interior design, my boat design, and so on and so on and so on. He was on the floor looking at my school portfolio. He didn't care about these other things that I did. He was busy looking at my school portfolio. And then he asked me three questions, all of which I, all of which I failed. He asked, "Do I like movies? No. Do I like science fiction?" I said, "No." Um, you know, do I like science fiction movies? I said, "No." And he asked, "Do I like movies?" And I said, "No." And I said, "Great, you're hired." <laughs> That's the honest and, job interview. And, you know, I asked, I hired to do what? Because there was no trapping as to what I was being interviewed for. I didn't care. I just wanted to know what I was being hired for. And he said, you're going to be designing. Uh, he said, no. He said, have you ever seen THX 1138? I said, no. I said, have you seen American Graffiti? I said, no. And he said, have you seen Star Wars? I said, and currently that movie was on while I was being interviewed. And I had heard about it. I had not seen it yet. And I said, yeah, I heard about that. I heard, you know, it's a pretty good movie. And he said, I did that. And I looked at him incredulously and I said, really? I didn't know who he was. There was no introduction, right? This is just a guy interviewing me for a job. For all I know, I was designing coffin. I don't know. I, there was no, I had no idea what the interview was about. So he said, uh, you know design. I know how to make movies. You know, and he said, when can you start? So I started the following week, which was a few days later. And that's how I got into um my first movie was Empire Strikes Back. 
And at that time, it had not been written yet. You know, he has a very peculiar way of making movies in that he only brings along um, a handful of people, maybe four or five people with him in the very beginning. Um, designers and um, uh, usually sound designer and visual designers. And he makes up stories as, as we go. I never saw a script for Star uh, for for Empire Strikes Back until about a year for production, but yet we had been working for almost two years. Wow, that's impressive. And and what was that experience like? So you know, you didn't even know at the time what you were going into design. So what did you end up designing while you were there? Uh, uh, what I've come to realize was is George is very peculiar in his way of making movies. Um, um, my first day literally was he showed me this first uh, floor of this two-story house. You know, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the, the second floor, uh, the first floor, the second floor was another designer named Joe Johnston. And below it was another complete floor. It was a, a brand new house that he bought next to his house. And he said, you know, go buy whatever you need to buy. So down the street in San Anselmo, there was a art supply, and I just went there and bought whatever I needed to buy. And so I'm sitting there wondering, so well, what do I do? Um and I, I, don't know, I, I think the, the first week I went to see Star Wars, and I thought, "Wow, this is really fun!" You know, I didn't know, I, I have no ideas. I had no idea at the time that movies were designed. You know, I know that products were designed. I know that fashion is designed. I know cars are designed, but movies, I had no idea. So, you know, um, sketch things here and there, and. He would come in in the afternoon, um, and he would tell sequences. Or uh, at that time, I just thought he was just telling me stories. You know, you know what? What do you think if we do something in the ice planet? You know, what would what would what would uh, what would a hidden um, fortress look like? You know in a nice planet, what would the machine look like? In a sort of very abstract storytelling kind of way. He, he never really tell you what to do. And then he would leave. And I go, well, I know I'm not designing sound. So he's probably asking me to visualize what he just told me. And... Uh, Joe, another visual designer, was working upstairs, but we never shared ideas. Um, every two weeks or so, uh, Joe and I would get together with George and would show George whatever we've been working on. Now, we were never given an assignment. We were just told stories. And from those stories, we were to, I guess, we were to pick whatever we wanted to pick and visualize whatever it is that we wanted to visualize and you know whatever joe showed george 
I would also show sketches of what I had. And George would just mark it with a red felt pen, whichever one he fancied or got his attention. But he never knew why he was doing that or never explained why he was putting dots on it. And the one with red dots goes to this to this side, and the ones that was not marked goes to the other side. And pretty soon, you know, the 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 ones that were marked begin to have a coherent graphic story, or uh, um, a visual thread to it. Oh, I get it. He wants. What he envisioned was something like this, you know. How would how would the empire attack the rebels on snow on snow planet? You know, and I remember I think the first time Joe suggested that there's a walking big walking machine. I, my impulse was, why would they do that? <laughs> Wouldn't they just bomb the hell out of these people? And I thought, well, I guess there wouldn't be any story if we do that. And if they would just come in with flying saucer, uh, we've seen that. So there's, you know, there's no visual signature to this thing. And slowly, you you know, I was being educated as to how movies are made, as to how George works, because George is peculiar in his way of working in movies. And then eventually, all of these approved shots become storyboards. And they're honed in even tighter. And then about one year before production, we um, we gathered all the, uh, you know, and all the uh, storyboards were now complete from beginning to end. Um, George gathered us to a meeting, in, a big meeting with about 15, 20 people in the room. And a lot of them were technical Oscar winners, although I didn't know who they were at the time. And um, let me see. I think what happened was um, because I work on the opening sequence of this ice planet, George asked me, you know, Neil, why don't you begin the meeting by explaining, you know. So I walked everybody through what the first shot was going to be, what, you know, the the um, Imperial forces sent um, a probe and the probe discovered that there are rebels in this ice planet. And then here comes the, you know, on page 14, here comes the snow walkers. And I remember a hand went up in the meeting room and I ignored whoever that guy was. I ignored him because it couldn't be for me. I don't know what I'm doing. I'm just explaining what I was, you know, what the sequence was. I had no idea how to shoot this, where it's going to be, um, what the elements are. I had no clue at that time. So Han went up and George said, Bruce, do you have a problem? The hand belonged to a guy named Bruce Nicholson. And Bruce said, what color is the walker? And there's silence in the room. 
And everybody's looking at George, you know, expecting George to tell everybody what the color was. But the truth is, at that time, we had not talked um, between George, Joe Johnson, and myself. We didn't know what the color was. We just never, we were not there yet. We knew it was a walker, but we never discussed the details of that walker. So George said, Nilo? So I had to make something up on the spot. And so I said, white. And so the next shot and the next shot. Now we're on page 24. On page 24, the snow speeder arrives. Bruce again raised his hand. What color is the snow speeder? Everybody looks to Jordan because we've never spoken about what the color is. And because I kind of own this sequence, George asked me, Nilo? And I thought, white? <laughs> it can't be any other color in my head. You know, if you're in the snow planet and you're hiding, of course it's going to be white. So now we're on page, whatever, 97. And George stops the meeting and he said, Bruce, do you have a problem? Because Bruce is still on page 14. And he said, I don't know how to pull a mat on white, on white, on white, on white. And I had to lean to the guy next to me and I had to ask, what is a mat? Um, and George said, um, I'm not asking you to pull a mat on white, on white, on white today, next week, next month, or maybe never. You want to come and join us on page 97? A year and a half later, the movie is released. Guess who wins the technical Oscar for that year? <laughs> Bruce Nicholson. Not for pulling a mat on white, on white, on white, on white. Because actually, that was the least of our technical problems. You know, the, the point that I got out of that was embrace the totality of the problem first before you start picking it apart. And I've been using that as a metaphor, you know, ever since I got out of that meeting. <laughs> you know, understand the problem first. Don't worry about the details. That might not even survive. You know, and a lot of the things we actually envision, we could not deliver. You know, um, we had ideas of what it could look like, but we had no technical answer as to how to put it all together. And when I look back at that movies, there are missing pieces of that movies that I w that would actually tell a better coherent visual story had we had we been able to pull it off but we didn't but nobody ever noticed it you know the movie still worked did you know when you were making it or even when you saw it for the first time that it would turn into what it's turned into you know years and years later that it's still this beloved thing that has you know cemented itself in popular culture no there, you know, and I've done many movies that um, none, um, very few movie script told me that in advance. 
what what typically happens in a in a movie script george does it you know like i said he does it differently than most people usually um people like me production designer production people are hired once the script is done and once they have put together a budget and once they have put together a schedule of release and we back into that release george takes his time designing movies george takes his time permeating his ideas you know with a handful of collaborators and once it um it takes shape then he begins to hire people then he writes he finally writes or or bring in specific writers to, to you know pull it all together and then bring in the technical people to to you know sort of arrest everything into shape right uh, Mostly when I read, since then, when I read a script, I have no clue whether this movie is going to work or not, you know, um, because it, a lot of it depends on the director. A lot of it depends on the actor and their craft. A lot of it is, you know, it's the magic of all of this music and the movies and the actor's craft and, and even marketing, mm-hmm. you know? Um, so, so as a, production person all you can do is stay within your area of expertise and do it the best way you can i'm i'm curious because you've you you worked with lucas on a number of projects even after mm-hmm. star wars and i can see why if you if he has this particular way of creating once you kind of become entrenched in that way it's much easier and i'm wondering um do you do you develop start developing a shorthand when you work with the same individuals uh on multiple projects i know that you also worked with steven spielberg on a number of projects and i'm kind of curious how those relationships um uh, uh, affect the way you work and the way that you communicate with creators um let me see Uh, maybe this is um I'll go in a roundabout way of answering that. Um, one of the things that um, ILM, because I was uh, ultimately when ILM was reformed, you know, and moved uh, to Northern California, I I became part of ILM. And even though ILM is post-production, I actually work with George in pre-production. And then I work with him on production. And then I go to the back end of the movie post-production. So I actually worked with him from beginning to end. And what ILM had discovered was that this learning that I've learned, that I've acquired by working with George was marketable. So, well, we were, well, (laughs) you know, we wanted to do um, Star Trek, you know, because it's, uh, I mean, ILM wanted to do Star Trek. And, but we didn't have the capacity to actually do it in concert with another production at that time. So the best way, um, the best way for us to do that was to actually parachute me over to Paramount and work directly with Leonard Nimoy. And I was there for about eight months while we were developing, you know, Star Trek. Three and four, I think that that was the two movies that Lena did. And on Star Trek Four, I remember reading 
you know, um, the the script was more or less there when I, uh, you know, when I first got there, and um, um, I remember making a remark to Leonard Leonard that what a waste, you know, this is such a good script wasted on Star Trek. And I was surprised he didn't fire me on the spot. <laughs> you know, because at that time, I really didn't know anything about Star Trek. And in fact, oh, here's a good one. In fact, um, um, there's always a kind of a celebratory the night before production party. You know, and so we had a we had that party at Paramount. And, um, and because I was always I don't know I was always on Leonard's side as I was on George's side during pre-production you know and all that time I've been faking my way in into making Leonard believe I know Star Trek the reality is I don't know anything about Star Trek because I've never seen an episode of Star Trek ever and I would call a friend of mine to bounce off ideas you know I would call um, my friend Phil, and I would tell him, Phil, on episode so-and-so, Leonard said that there was this such-and-such. Tell me about it. And he would tell me about it, and I would go around and go back to meeting, and I would have kind of the briefest information about that so-and-so on episode whatever. And it was enough for me to skate by all the way to the pre-production uh, production dinner and Leonard sidled over to me and he said something about a specific Star Trek um, religion or, or or you know episode and I had to come clean I told him Leonard you know I have to tell you that's because sooner or later you're going to find out. Anyway, I never saw an episode of Star Trek. And he stops the party. You know, you know, he clinked that glass. You know, when you have a party and you clink that glass and everybody stops mm-hmm. and listens. And he announced that, you know, Neil just told me he doesn't know anything about Star Trek after working with me for eight months. And I thought, okay, this is it. This is the end of my career. Yeah, and it was good natured. It was, you know, he was surprised that I didn't know, and I fake, faked it all the way. <laughs> so anyway, um, all I really did was took his idea and re whatever I did for George or for Stephen, I represented it back visually and you know hopefully with my signature on it i'm really curious because i wonder do you think that if your career in the film business had started with a different project or a different creator that you ever would have ended up where you've ended up having worked on all of these uh projects and working in the way that you do where you're you know you're you're visualizing um, you know, something that is in somebody's mind, they, they may not even know what it looks like, but they know that it's right when they see it. 
do you think you ever would have gotten to where you are today if you hadn't started with with Lucas? I don't. I don't think so. And in fact, Marina, I I don't know how to do it any other way. So when I'm usually hired to, um, usually when when I'm hired, I, I would look at the script. And as a production designer, which I became later on, you know, I look at it, and uh, and my first job is actually to budget it. You know, what would this cost? And what is the most important sequence? And therefore, what is the most important vi- uh, visualization of this movie? You know, if you walk away from a movie and you only remember two or three visual scenes in that movie, that movie is fairly successful. You know, um, and I tend to read scripts that way. And if I can't get a, a visual handle on it, I tend to not get involved in it because it, I wouldn't know what to do. Um, and usually when movies are given to me and everything has already been uh, pre-designed, uh, the director already has what he has in mind, it's a tedious task because there's nothing left to do but execute what he has in mind. And you can't really plus it anymore. You can't go anywhere with that. You know, and I've, I've done movies like that where I just go, okay, let's do it that way. But, you know, but it's not as fulfilling, I expect. It's it's not um, creatively fulfilling. Towards the end of my uh, movie career, I hooked up with John Hughes. And the funniest part of that was I wanted to production design a movie that he was working on. I'd met him years years before. But John was doing something like $4 million movies, and I was working on a $100 million movie. So we were worlds apart. And, and years later, he was beginning to reimagine what Disney franchise movies you know, was going to be in this new century. And he started with 101 Dalmatian. And after that, I got involved with him. And I wanted to design movies for him because I wanted to learn filmmaking from a $4 million point of view. But what Disney had in mind was to put me in together with John because John was now doing $100 million movies. You know, so it made kind of sense to Disney was to hook me up with John. So John sent me this script. And I read it and a couple of weeks later, he called me up and he said, uh, what do you think of The Bee? It was a movie called The Bee. And, you know, I told him I'd. Yeah, I think it's a really great idea. Let's let's make this movie. It's appropriate and so on. He got so excited about it. He asked me to come over to Chicago and he said, "Bring your notes." I said, "Notes? I don't have any notes. I'm just winging it." What I did, Marina, was brought a CD with me of um, a, a specific. Um, music by Juan Garcia Esquivel. And the music 
immediately tells me the B. And that's all I know. I don't know who starred in this. I don't know what it looks like. I don't know. But this music captured the essence of the B. So armed with that, I go to Chicago. And by this time, I've been working with John and Disney now, you know, for, you know, for six months. And John says, you know, did you bring your notes? I said, no, but I brought a CD with me. And he looked at me kind of funny. And I pulled out a CD on my, on my backpack. And he looked at it and he said, come with me. We go to his study and he has in this study, he has a cabinet and he opened his cabinet. And there he pulls out exactly the same CD. And in exactly the same CD, he pointed without without knowing what what song of that CD I was going to play for him. He pointed exactly the same song that I was going to play for him that started him to write The Bee. Kindred Spirits. Um, it, it does not have to be visual. You know, it, it, um, creativity can spark in many, many ways. I mean, I'm amazed that music are composed or can be composed. I'm just amazed that musicians can do that. So John has this idea, you know, I've always wanted to make that movie. And now I know who's going to make that movie. And I said, no, I don't want to direct. I'll produce this movie for you, but I don't want to direct. It's very difficult to direct for other people who knows exactly what that movie should be. The only people that can do that is them. So I didn't want to walk into that minefield, you know. So I was with John. Uh, and for about three, four years. And then John passed away, and then I, I got a call from uh, EA, you know, can you give a talk about design? And I told him, I don't know anything about games. You know, so it doesn't matter, you know, come on over and, you know, have a talk uh, anyway. And I landed here in Vancouver and never left. This is part one of our two-part conversation. Look for part two dropping in your podcast feed in two weeks' time. The Spark Podcast is a production of the Spark Computer Graphics Society. For more about Spark CG and our upcoming events, visit sparkcg.org. We'll be back with another episode of the podcast in two weeks' time.